Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Curator's Choice. I'm your host, Ayla Anderson, and today we are meeting with Robert Hicks, the previous director of the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia. If you have not been to the Mütter Museum, it is an experience. The museum contains a collection of anatomical and pathological specimens. They have wax models, they have antique medical equipment, and the entire museum is part of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. The museum has so many different kinds of specimens. In their repository, you can find the liver of the conjoined twin Chang and Ang Bunker, who you may know from P.T. Barnum's Circus Acts. There is a 40-pound colon from someone who unfortunately suffered from constipation their entire life. There is anthropodermic books or books bound in human skin, which I did as one of the bonus episodes for patron-exclusive members where we talked about some of the books bound in human skin that Megan Rosenblum investigated. But the artifacts that Robert is going to share with us are pretty darn good examples as well. So he shares with us Mary Curie's radioactive artifact, the piezoelectric quartz electrometer. Apparently, it's a device that is used to measure radioactivity, and he is going to share with us the history of Mary Curie herself and how this little device even works. We also learn about a very rare disorder, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce, but the abbreviation is FOP. And with this disorder, muscle tissue slowly turns into bone. And there are few individuals in the world who have been found to have FOP, and two of them have their skeletons at Mütter, and one of them was Carol Orzel, and she was quite amazing, much like Mary Curie herself. They both have some incredible qualities, and I'm really excited that Robert shares them with us all. So if you would like to see photos of today's episode, please visit curatorschoicepodcast.com or look at the Facebook feed or the Instagram. I will be posting things there as well. And on a more personal note, I wanted to share with you all that as of yesterday, I am the official coordinating producer for the Dog Podcast Network. And really, the reason that I was able to get this job is because I do this podcast. Now, do not fear, I will not be forsaking my museums. I'm going to continue doing the podcast, but professionally, I am now also a podcast producer. So I'll be working from home, making amazing episodes about museums, of course, but also about dogs. I'm so excited and it's going to be a really amazing opportunity. And if you would like to check any of them out, I will include the link in the show notes. My first episode that I created was Conservation Canines. So I'll include that if you guys would like to have a listen. It's got some really cool bits to it. Of course, I'm biased, but that piece got me hired on. So it has to be at least good enough, right? All right. So without any further ado, let's hear from Robert Hicks at the Mütter Museum. I was there for almost 12 years as director of the museum and also director of the historical medical library, both. 
And I can imagine, along with being a really fascinating job, you probably had to deal with quite a lot of ethical issues because of basically what all the are, are the contents within the Mooner itself. That's that's really just an ongoing conversation. And in some respects, the Mooner Museum is a museum of itself. You could not today, starting from scratch, constitute a museum like that. The, the nature of the collection, how the collections came to be a collection is sort of varied and it's anchored to a lot of circumstances in time and particularly in the 19th century, early 19th century. Dr. Mutter uh, was the main benefactor. Of course, the museum's named for him. Very well-known local physician who had a very reputable private practice. He also taught, had a good reputation as a teacher. Uh, he also innovated some forms of early plastic surgery, but he had, was a man of wealth and he created a private collection, which became the core of the Mutter Museum. And even today, uh, when you were there, you may not have been able to tell, but some of the specimens on display were ones he originally collected. Not everything he collected survives. The museum itself has moved location about four times. And uh, particularly in an era before there was air conditioning and humidity control, some stuff just didn't last um, anatomical specimens. But he intended it to be a study collection for physicians. It may not have been possible to say, do, do various chemical or genetic analyses of the specimen in say 1810, but that's where the museum as the current curator would describe it is now become a biorepository. The technology of extracting DNA from diseased tissues has become so sophisticated and refined over the last 20 years that specimens in jars pickled in formalin or other chemicals that were deemed unusable for DNA analysis now can be assayed. And we've had two significant breakthroughs in that line. One looking at cholera, history of cholera through a specimen of a African-American person who died in 1849 Philadelphia during a cholera pandemic. It was possible to actually get DNA and reconstruct the, the version of cholera that killed that man and that devastated the city in 1849. We did it most recently with smallpox and and uh, we, in 20, summer of 2020, we published the first paper about that. This is the first time anyone has ever been able to recover DNA from basically pickled specimens in the museum. So it now opens up the whole collection as a potential biorepository for disease research. And for that reason, we sort of created a semi-fictitious entity called the Mutter Research Institute so that um, the curator who heads that and is also the acting head of the museum right now that's sort of where we stick all the scientific work going on. We call it part of the Mütter Institute. And we have a long-term commitment with an alliance with McMaster University of Canada, which has an ancient DNA research center, which can do this kind of analysis. So, man, it's, things are popping. That is so remarkable. I never would have thought that something that I would imagine would be so degraded from being in these kinds of chemical concoctions for so long, you can actually extract anything from them whatsoever. That is, in, that is just incredible. It doesn't mean it's easy. Um, it, it has been difficult and it's taken months to do that kind of analysis to get enough significant data points to justify claims that we've got this, that, or the other thing. And um, we began talking, or I began rambling at, at this conversation about the nature of the museum and how the museum came to be. If we had been part of a medical school, I mean, we never were part of a medical school. The College of Physicians of Philadelphia is a professional fraternal organization, 
It's been around since 1789, but it's been intended to be a forum for professional dialogue and communication. And the museum was created because Dr. Mutter, the fellow of the college, said, hey, let me donate my collection and I have a collection too. And the library kind of started sort of uh, ad hoc as well and grew to about 350,000 volumes in a collection spanning a thousand years. So it just accumulated, just accreted over time from various circumstances. It is true, some human material in the collection probably derived from activities that would be deemed criminal today, or at least unethical. But uh, medical schools that once prized these kinds of specimens eliminated them. And by the 1970s, 80s, 90s, they started to get rid of them, destroy them. So if we had been part of a medical school at a major university, Mutter Museum probably would not exist. It's existed because it's been an independent thing. And the public interest in it has simply grown in 2008, when I started working there, they were breaking about 50,000 people a year on visitation, just general visitation. When I stepped down just one month before the pandemic struck, <laughs> uh, the annual figure was about 180 some thousand a year. So a wild group, but I could ramble on, but you probably had some good questions. Well, I just would really like to, I mean, you obviously know this, but I think it's important for people to realize, I mean, the collections that are at the Mütter Museum, like you said, it's a constant struggle of, you know, it, it's just a constant conversation that you're, always having, that you're always having about the ethics of it and the legality of some of it. But I think that it's just so incredible that this collection survived and not only that it survived, but now we're able to do these kinds of analyses that I would have never thought would be possible, to be honest with you. And it just goes to show that it is important to still kind of maintain these kinds of situations because you have no idea what you might be able to learn in the future from something like that. And it actually will be so exciting from this point forward to see where this goes. So absolutely amazing. But I did want to kind of ask what most people would probably know what the Mütter Museum is, but what separates the Mütter Museum from regular museums all around? Because in my opinion, it's one of a kind. Well, I, I agree with you. And um, I would say it as the preeminent museum that's medically oriented in the country, and it is, it's the best visited, best known, but not the only one. And the others are mostly other smaller. It's unusual because you don't often go to a museum where the specimens are also looking at you. So you're looking at human bodies, not all human. There's a, a zoological collection there as well. And not all on exhibit. And like any other museum, it's a small percentage of what's on exhibit compared to the overall holdings for, for various reasons. So it's a rare opportunity, and I mean a very rare opportunity, for people in a neutral space without pressure to look inside the body and think about, this could be me. What is this what my inside looks like? Is this what happens if I get this disease? And if I got this disease, what would be the treatment for it? You can ask those questions. And I say it's sort of a safe space because the only other places people have that kind of conversation are usually when they're in a doctor's office being told, hey, you need surgery next week. And, and I'm, now, I'm now putting you under a lot of pressure and a lot of anxiety. You don't have to have that coming into the museum. You're a spectator. You can take as much or as little as you want. So I think what's on display reaches into your psyche in ways different from any other museum. 
And most museums, of course, are dealing with artifacts. And I have to qualify that an artifact technically is any human made thing. And of course you could look at a tool or a scientific instrument, but in a way the Wood Museum is an artifact museum too, because any biological material that's been shaped or manipulated by human hands counts as an artifact. So we're in sort of an interesting, ambiguous territory. And I did get one of the books when we, when we came to visit about the man who basically this connection, this collection started from. And he, on his own right, has a really amazing, interesting background. Could you give us just a little bit about who he was, the shining moments of what this Mutter man was, Mutter man was? In recent years, a, a popular book called Dr. Mutter's Marvels, and um, or sometimes we jokingly refer to it as Dr. Mutter's Marbles. And we know the author. And one of my colleagues says, the book doesn't really highlight the museum. It, it highlights him. But it's a, it's, it's reading faction. It's, there's fiction mixed with fact in there. I think his reputation in the medical world is probably far overrated in that book, just based on what colleagues seem to have written about him. That he was a, a standout professor seems certain. Uh, he was a good teacher at one of the two premier medical schools in the country, both in Philadelphia at the time. His innovation in plastic surgery is interesting because it's very early. We don't usually think of that kind of surgery to manipulate skin, create a different appearance that early in the first, almost the end of the first half of the 1800s. He seemed to be fascinated with innovations. He was one of the first to embrace anesthesia and surgery. Now it's when making these sorts of judgments about an early physician, it's hard to do it out of context and match people against 21st century standards. One difficulty with talking about the history of medicine at all in an academic setting, much less to the public, is that there's a real embedded narrative of triumph and progress. Uh, it's too easy to say, well, here we are in the 21st century. How could medicine be any better than this, aside from its cost? Uh, you got all this high-tech equipment, this diagnostic and imaging stuff. Boy, they couldn't do that back then. But if you take it within the context of the time, you have to look at it a bit differently. The status of doctors was different back then in the public view. It was lesser than it is now. There was no standardization of medical training in the United States at the time. The people who wanted to be at the top of their game would have gone to a U.S. medical school, but also gone abroad to Paris or, or Edinburgh, Scotland, or London, or Germany, or Italy to attend the venerable old schools and study with the masters. In a sense, it was very much a craft because you're learning from experienced people how to do something. But there are certain limitations, such as there's no DNA analysis. Germ theory is sort of an abstract thing. It's not commonly understood as a, there's a disease causing mechanism. It's small little things. The distinction between a bacterial infection or a viral infection is just not there yet. By the time of the American Civil War, these things are just almost, you can almost see them coming together. And in a short decade or two after the Civil War, all kinds of medical innovations take place. And in some cases, based on the intensive medical work that went on during the war, which opened up new doors to creating specialties. So to get back to Dr. Mutter, which is your, your question, I think we can say this is a man who is very competent. He also was vain in the sense of being a social climber. The last name, his name was actually Mutter. M-U-T-T-E-R, without the umlaut. He added the umlaut. 
And we all think he did it just to add a little savoir-faire mystique to his personality. He also liked wearing fashionable clothes. Pink was his favorite color. But there's actually not a great deal that's known about him um, through his contemporaries. It's not as if Luther himself left Lumen's correspondence. He died young, but he had a short life. And he was ill for quite some time before he died. He would have been conversant with as much new medical ideas circulating at the time. So today he would be a fairly high-end, expensive physician to visit, to consult, and probably one who held one or more teaching appointments and was renowned for that and uh, probably uh, did some little, as some good surgeons do, found a niche, developed some technology and method around plastic surgery. That's the best assessment I could give of the man. Not, uh, I think if you asked his colleagues at the time, list the top 10 physicians in Philadelphia. I'm not sure his name would appear. Interesting. I mean, and I think that that's kind of the way that it goes sometimes, especially if you're getting something from a singular source, it might seem a little bit more, not embellished, but just single-minded focused versus if you're talking about the the broader aspects of it. So that's good to keep in mind, especially if you wanted to read the book, which I'm in the process of reading, actually. So it's really good to get this input as well. So I wanted to ask, I think the thing that I am most excited to learn about is what are two of your favorite artifacts at the museum? Okay, I'll start with the one that came to the museum very recently. And it relates to the point I made earlier that uh, a biological specimen can also be an artifact. And in this case, her name is Carol, Carol Orzell. And uh, in a lot of medical collections, particularly in the older museums that have been rapidly closing in Europe, particularly kind of old museums, uh, specimens don't have personalities outside of what you can see. That is, we don't know who they belong to. That information was not recorded. Uh, for the Mütter Museum, sometimes we have very in-depth information. A lot of times we don't. The records are scant. That information was taken away. The trend these days and the interest of the Mütter Museum is to bring the whole person in. Let's find out about this person. A couple of years ago, we learned from a physician at Penn, who's a leading physician in the treatment of a very rare disease that's abbreviated FOP, fibroid dysplasia ossificans progressiva. And I practiced that in front of a mirror where I said that. Uh, <laughs> FOP is a rare disease, but it's incurable. And it can be summed up this way. It's a genetic trigger goes off in your body and tells your body to start making more bone. You have a skeleton but it commands the connective tissue to turn into bone. So you effectively start growing a second skeleton. This paralyzes you and will eventually kill you because your rib cage will no longer expand when you breathe or some other problems takes place. Well, the Mütter Museum has had for many years a skeleton of a man named Harry Eastlack, and you probably saw him. The skeleton is of a piece. If you imagine a skeleton in a college classroom for anatomy where the bones are re-articulated through pins and wires. In an FOP person, the bones all fuse. They don't move anymore. And Harry was frozen into one configuration and he died just short of his 40th birthday several decades ago. And uh, the Mütter's been the only museum in this hemisphere to have an FOP body in the collection. 
which has been actively used to this moment for anatomical study by people looking at this disease. And occasionally specialists will come back in because they had a new idea. They want to take a fresh look at Harry's body to see if it verifies, you know, what their prediction. Well, we were contacted by this physician who runs an FOP lab at, at Penn. In fact, the physician who was the first recently to actually identify the gene that causes this disease and said, a woman by the name of Carol Warzel just died, who's, who's, was an FOP victim. And she wanted her body to be in the litter for study. We were absolutely flummoxed. We had no idea. No one had ever contacted us before. And so let's find out what this is all about. There's a nursing home in Philadelphia specifically for severely disabled people. And FOP would certainly qualify. Uh, now FOP, I should say, it's a rare disease. It does not occur very much. There's no cure. And if you start developing that excessive bone growth, some doctors will mistake that for like some form of rheumatoid arthritis and go in surgically to remove the bone. Doing that only brings FOP on more aggressively. So there's no surgical intervention that's good. It hasn't been a drug that's about to change to help with this. You have to rely on the, on the disease just going through a growth spurt and then stopping for several years. And then maybe picking up again on its own. There's nothing you can do about it. So, uh, if you're an FOP person, you know that your life's going to be short and unless something changes soon, there ain't no cure and there's no way to help you out. Well, Carol was one of those people and she lived in this disabled home. We knew nothing about her. Started looking into it. She died at age 59. We found out, we went and interviewed people that uh, she had lived with and knew her for years and years and years, including her physician. The physician uh, who reported this to us was Carol was his very first FOB case that got him on the track of becoming an expert decades ago. And so they sort of grown up together in a way. Judging from what we could find out, Carol was an absolute charmer. She was absolutely magnetic. She had beautiful long red hair. And rather than just try to get in sweat clothes and sit in a wheelchair all day, she dressed whenever she could. She was the first person to get a computer in her nursing home because she wanted to use it to get dates. She got them. And she just had that kind of personality that was larger than life. And we discovered that she wanted to be in the Moon Museum. And we were willing to do that because that means there are two FOP specimens now. This is important comparative purposes. And uh, the fact that she lived to be unusually old for an FOP person is very interesting. So, okay, she died. She was a funeral home at that point. They didn't know what, quite what to do. But if you're going to have her as a specimen, you got to take the flesh off them bones. Okay, so that's a challenge right there. And Carol's only condition of being in the Witter Museum was that however she is displayed, she wanted to be displayed, as she put it, with her bling, her costume jewelry, which she had a ton of. And I know that because I, I picked up her huge pink suitcase full of costume jewelry to take back from her room to the Moon Museum. So the next challenge was, well, how do we get her prepared? Um, she her configuration and the photographs we saw of her, and you can see this online. There's, there's plenty. You can check YouTube for, there's at least one or two videos about Carol. So you can see more. She had to be sent, I think it was, to a place in Oklahoma, there was a company that can deflesh the bones at 
prepares skeletons for museums. And they were willing to do it at a cut rate, which still means it was very expensive. And a donor paid for it. It was up in five figures because any method that they could usually use to deflesh bones ate away her bone because the bone was so pliable and plastic, you could stick your finger through it, uh, which made it a real challenge. But they were able to do it. And I remember the day the crate arrived with Carol in it and carefully took the, the top off and all the excelsior and there she is. And the thing that impressed me the most was this was once the framework for a person who lived for 59 years. And I don't think her skeleton weighed more than five pounds. It was nothing. It was like picking up a skeleton of a bird with all those hollow bones. And that's the way her bones were. And uh, everything was now of a piece also like Harry's. Nothing moved anymore. In fact, in addition to dressing up and putting on their jewelry, she could not put her hands to her face to do makeup. But she created on her own a kind of a stick that she could put in her hand, which could only be held at waist level, and directed the stick up, and she could manipulate it to actually get her makeup on. So she was absolutely determined, you know, this, this condition wasn't going to beat her down. We learned more about her. We went to a certain memorial service uh, with her colleagues and friends, learned more about her. She had been active in disabled rights agitation or recognition for access to places, participated in a one or two street protests. But she also liked to, to go to medical schools and talk to medical school students about her condition. But also she, she wanted to do that. She says, I'm not just this pathological specimen. I live with this body and I still have a life. And that was a point she would make repeatedly. And she just turned the heck out. So we got the skeleton back, put it on display. There's a bit of a, a book. I don't know if she was on display when you saw the museum. Um, I can't remember when she went up, but she's been there for almost two years. And there's sort of a flip book showing pictures of her, but we've honored her request to display her blame. There's a little case right next to the skeleton where we rotate her earrings and her bracelets and her necklaces and anything else she's got. So every so often that costume jewelry is rotated. So her plane gets up. So I have to admit to having a, a crush on Carol. We've only got her skeleton, but looking at the skeleton, inferring a life in the skeleton, plus what we know from her friends, she had no relatives, no family. Her parents had long since died, no siblings. So there was no extended family to look out for her. She was really alone in the world in that respect. She, she sure didn't live as she was. So I don't want to say she's a picture postcard of a disabled person. That's, that would be, I think, very reductive to say that. But she sure shouts out, even now when you stand in front of her, take a look at me, study what happened to me, learn from it. And shake my hand and have a nice day. That's kind of her attitude. So I think she ranks pretty high. And it's one of my favorite things. Should I go on to another? You watched me for two. I can give you another one. Yes. And what's really funny is when I was walking through, I kind of picked my own favorite items. And so that display with both of them in there was one of my favorite as well. Excellent. Excellent. Um, I'd be curious before I tell you the second one that comes to mind. What was some of the other things that, that sort of popped for you? 
Sure. So I think the wall of eyes, the eye deformities, that one really struck me um, as just particularly interesting because it's a fantastic way to display. And it was a lot to look at and a lot to take in, but fascinating to me because I had never really been super interested in, uh, you know, eye problems. But you see that and you're like, oh, man, I got to make sure my eyes are good. Uh, so th that one was really good. But then my ultimate favorite item that you guys have is the liver, the preserved liver of a woman who, who, yeah, no, the, the woman who had, you know, the, um, the corsets that women used to wear. So it had, it was a copy, not a copy. It was her liver, but you could see the line in it from where the rib cage had actually been permanently pressed into place on her liver. And though the rib was gone, it still had that mark on the liver. And I just, that was astounding to me. And then they also have the two skeletons, one of a woman who didn't have, who never had worn a corset, and then one of a woman who had consistently worn it. And just to see the deformities of their body, so interesting to me. And I went online and I looked at some different, you know, small documentary clips about those kinds of, of articles of clothing and just wild. That That's good. I'm going to pass on your comments to the curator the next time I, I talk to her too about that. Because, uh, yes, I remember when, uh, when, the two skeletons were put out. So you had an example of a corset shaped rib cage and had a corset out donated by one of the staff members who wore it. And, uh, but the liver, yeah, that's, that's very good. When he first said liver, I first thought you were going to talk, mention Chang and Ng's conjoined liver from the Siamese twins, but that's an excellent example. Well, I've given you an example of one biological specimen, Carol. The other one's an artifact, and it's not actually in the museum. And I wonder if you saw it when you entered the museum and there's a visitor desk there where you sign in and pay your money. Well, off to the left, there's kind of an alcove. Um, sitting in the alcove now is an iron lung machine and some other artifacts, but there was a case with Marie Curie artifacts in it. Did you happen to remember those? I saw the case and I, I regret to say I might have been more um, astounded by the concept of an iron lung just because I thought how terrifying. Um, but I did recently buy a book about Miss Carrie to read so I could learn more about her, so. Okay. Well, it's interesting that um, probably the best-selling biography of Marie Curie to date was written for the general public by Marie Curie's youngest daughter. Marie Curie had two daughters. The eldest also became a physicist. And... The youngest daughter, whose name has escaped me at the moment, became a pretty accomplished pianist. And she used to joke she was the only member of the family not to win a Nobel Prize. Because uh, mother did, older sister did. Anyway, Marie Curie was probably the most famous scientist of her day. If you asked a person on the street in like 1920, who's the most famous scientist in the world? They'd probably name her, not Einstein. They'd probably name her. And... Uh, Still, I think she's the only scientist to ever win two Nobel Prizes in two separate fields. And you see all these period photographs of her. She's usually the only woman against all these men, you know, with their goatees and looking very professorial. But, you know, she coins the term radioactivity, discovers radium with her husband. But the object that captured my attention was a piezoelectric uh, generator, and I P I E Z O. I may be mispronouncing that. You know, every smoke detector in the world 
uh, relies on this phenomenon of piezoelectric effect, which was discovered by Pierre Curie. And it involves applying a mechanical pressure to a prepared crystal. And the pressure actually forces it to emit electrons. The electrons are measurable. Now, how is that principle of any use? The device that's on display is, looks very simple. There's a wooden stool, looks like an old stool that's been kicking around. And on top of it is a rectangular brass box and it has a door and doesn't look like there's anything inside except a rod coming down right through the middle, through the stool, down below, attached to a little tray. The tray is just suspended on this rod. And you think, you know, I can put something in that tray. In the box, the rod is holding the quartz crystal. It looks like a microscope slide, but it's also prepared and laminated quartz crystal because if you put weights in the pan, it pulls the whole thing down. So the top rod holding the, uh, the crystal is fixed and the one below starts dragging because you're putting weights in a pan, putting stress on the crystal making it emit electrons and you have an electrometer. So it's got a meter on it to measure electric current. And you have some little chamber where you put a radioactive substance. Now the radioactive substance is always emitting stuff and it ionizes the air in the chamber. So it strips electrons and that registers electricity. So it's hooked up to the meter over here. You've got the piezoelectric device. By putting weights on the pan and generating electricity through pressure on the crystal, that electricity has a negative charge from the stuff in the chamber. So that needle starts to get tugged back to zero. When you got it back to zero, the weights in the pan translates to a little through a, a mathematical equation that the amount of electricity actually given off by the radioactive substance. It's an indirect measure of how much radioactivity has been expended. So. It impressed me because A, I understood it, and B, the college has Marie's correspondence about it. There was a doctor named Robert Abbey who was determined that here we are at the beginning of the 20th century, and if there was ever a medical symbol of the profession from the 19th century, it's probably the lancet cutting. That's what everybody thinks doctors, they cut. Well, in the 20th century, we've got a new weapon and it's called radiation. We can destroy tumors with it. And maybe we can do other things with it. And Marie Curie is in the vanguard of this new development. So we should herald her achievement. So he wrote to Marie Curie and said, I'm going to put together a cabinet for the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, where we have this museum. And I'd like to put in it mementos of the great and famous people in medicine. So he was able to get like a lock of Edward Jenner's hair, guy who responsible for vaccination. He got original sterilized test tubes for Lord Lister, you know, antisepsis. So he asked Marie Curie, he says, can you give the college something that speaks to your research in radioactivity? Cause that is going to be the forward direction of medicine. And she says, well, I'm looking around the lab here and I see, oh, there's a device over there. We haven't used in a long time. My husband built and it's this piezoelectric generator. I'll give it to you. And, uh, so. She came to the United States on a fundraising tour to get money to have radium produced for her for experiments in her laboratory. Now, radium at that time, something she discovered, 
was extremely cost prohibitive to create. And she and Pierre did it by sheer work, breaking down mountains of uranium ore to find this little substance. They isolated radium. Radium, the one most expensive materials to process to get to the radium. So some companies are starting to produce it like for $25,000 a gram in 1915 one. And so nobody can afford this stuff. So some companies were creating little rentable capsules with radium in it. So a doc, doctor or hospital could rent it and use it for say, drain it, reduce some tumor, and then they give it back again, like a lending library. Uh, but Marie Curie was trying to get money to do this. And this was a spontaneous women's movement in the United States to raise money for Marie Curie to get her grave of radium. And that's why she came to the United States. And along the way, she took this device to give to the College of Physicians on a special night, standing room only, where she presented this device to the college and said, this was important in our researches and uh, I want you to have it. And most people probably would not know, looking at it, it's the oldest extant device for measuring radioactivity. And I say that because uh, a previous uh, director of the museum had written to the Curie Museum about it and they in, in France. And they said, as far as we know, there were only two ISO devices made like this one. There was a later version where it was cylindrical, not a rectangular box, it was cylindrical, a little improved machine. And almost all the pictures of Marie Curie show the cylindrical one. They don't show the old one. So the other one disappeared long ago. It was in France. And Marie gave this one to us. When I, uh, you said you were about to read a biography. Uh, Eva, that's the daughter's name, who wrote the best-selling biography in the 1930s. It's still in print. She makes a mistake saying that device was given to the American Philosophical Society of Philadelphia. So a lot of people have gone there looking for it. They don't, I don't know because it's at the Winter Museum. So uh, I was intrigued with that machine because I thought, okay, how could this possibly be of use to a researcher of the caliber of Marie Curie when you're looking at very fine measurements? This is simply putting weights in a pan, you know, like scales at a grocery store. How could that possibly do it? And uh, I went to her correspondence. It's right there in the historical medical library. And it says, you get the hang of it. After a while, obviously, that thing has to hang quite vertically. Don't put any finger motion on it because you'll distort a reading. But she said, we could get very accurate research, uh, readings out of this within a small tolerance. And it was very useful in understanding electricity and radioactivity and how to generate electricity from radioactivity. So I thought, damn, if Marie Curie says this damn thing works, I'm convinced. So um, it's a favorite device of mine. Um, it's so simple looking. It doesn't look like there's anything to it at all. The fact that you could combine placing weights on a pen and it stresses a crystal and gives off electricity. Really? That's it? And, you know, that's part of the key to the universe? Apparently so. It kind of sounds like fictitious wizardry or alchemy. It, it does. It's, it sounds almost unbelievable. I ended up publishing a little paper on that and, and also the story of Marie Curie coming to, to Philly with his machine. She actually shipped it ahead of her and it got stuck in customs in New York. Now, what the heck is this? And uh, this Dr. Abby had to intercede to get the thing. But uh, she was very generous in sending this device from her laboratory. And it's a good example of how labs work, where you you look around the room and say, oh, uh, that stool over there, let me 
get that over here. I'm going to drill a hole in it. I'm going to put that box over here and I'm going to assemble this together. And then you use it for a while and then you find, okay, I don't need it anymore or I've figured out something better. And the old thing is off to the side. And usually old machines that are pioneering just get cannibalized in the future or discarded. And there's nobody there to say, I want it for a museum in the future. But this one survived only because Abby asked for something and Marie Curie gave it. And from that point forward, it was there. The sort of PS to this story is that um, when I came to work there and, and I saw this machine, I thought, I got to know more about it. It's Marie Curie. You know, that's, that led me to find her correspondence and so forth in the library. And I thought, I'm sitting here. This is a letter signed by Marie Curie. I'm, it's in my hands. I'm reading this thing. And it's a description. She sends a letter both in English and in French. <laughs> Same letter. Uh, she translates it herself, talking about how this device works and how it was used in the laboratory. It's very straightforward. It's actually very simple. Not much more complicated than what I just told you. But uh, it was put on display. Abby put these other things on display. Marie Curie gave a few other artifacts, which are no longer in the museum, for the reason I'm getting to, uh, including a spoon she sort of crafted for treating uterine cancer with radium. And the idea was there's a little cap on the spoon and you open it up, put the ampule with radium that you rented, close it up and shove it up the vagina, count the 10, take it out again and see what happens to the tumor. That's how the therapy was done in those days. They didn't know what doses, dosages of what radium might be needed, how close you would get to the tumor, but they got results. Tumors did shrink by doing this, but you might also cause radiation sickness. Robert Abbey apparently died of complications with radiation sickness himself. The devices, other things he had, like the spoon from Marie Curie, came to the Witter collection. Well, the Paizo device has been out there on display for like ever since 1920, whatever it was, 22. 100 years, 100 years. And um, it wasn't until the 1980s that somebody actually put a Geiger counter next to it and discovered it was way too hot to be out in a public place. And not only that, they went into the library stacks. All that Marie correspondence was also too hot to even handle with bare hands. So they use a micro vacuuming process to get all the fine dust. You can imagine Marie Curator Laboratory where they had mountains of uranium ore, which is dust everywhere. It was radioactive. So that had to be decontaminated. The device itself had to be taken away and taken off in parts and um, individually decontaminated. The chair was wood, just a wooden stool, and they pretty much had to shave off part of the surface of the wood to kind of get rid of the residue. And so now it's safe, but for all that time, it should have been out. 1988, I think somebody put the Geiger counter to it, said, ah, not a good thing here. So it points to an ongoing saga at the museum of you never know when you're going to get surprises like that. And there have been a few. Um, but anyway, that's my long-winded story about uh, the Marie Curie device and why I think that's... It's an excellent choice. So for people who might not be 100% familiar with who Marie Curie was, could you give a brief little background of her story? Because she really was, obviously, from what you told us and from you know her history, she's remarkable. But for someone who maybe doesn't have a, that kind of a background... Well, Marie Curie... She was Polish. She moved to France and kind of struggled against what you would expect, uh, having a woman taken seriously in physical sciences. 
she became a sort of a lab assistant to an established scientist, Pierre Curie, and they fell in love and married. They began to do the researches together. And Pierre was very clear uh, that this is a joint research effort from this point on. The discovery of radium was probably the thing that brought them headlines to discover this, first of all, a new element, very laboriously sought after uh, through all that work with the uranium ore, which was dirty, punishing, excruciating, time-consuming, expensive, but they finally got to it. So they discovered this, they discovered radioactivity. Well, they hadn't, they were not the first one to observe it in some fashion, but they, Marie Curie gave it the name. He died, Pierre Curie died when they were both young in a tragic accident, crossing the street and got hit by a cart and run over and the wheel crushed his skull just like that. So she was on her own, already had two daughters. Uh, the older one became a physicist, worked alongside her mother, and they continued their researches together. Um, Marie Curie got Nobel Prizes in both physics and then later chemistry, or maybe it was the other way around, for work not only discovering radium, but for other work connected with radioactive substances. During World War I, living in France, Marie Curie and her daughter both volunteered to run mobile X-ray units for soldiers in the field. Now, at that time, uh, X-ray was kind of a new thing, and the fact that you could record it on film was a new thing, but a very important medical tool all of a sudden. You had a way to image inside the body, particularly for soldiers in the battlefield, broken bones, internal injuries. It was some way to look. And uh, the, the sad part about that is Marie Curie died young-ish. She was either in her late 50s or early 60s, and... Many biographies say probably due to radiation poisoning, although her corpse was examined in the mausoleum where she is still today in France with other French heroes, and it's determined probably not radiation from radium or other substances, but from the x-rays. Because if you get an x-ray today, the operator, or you shield yourself like a dental x-ray and look at the big lead apron on, there was no shielding in those mobile x-ray labs. They didn't quite appreciate the need for it. So somebody standing there next to one of those machines, x-raying a soldier, is probably getting the equivalent of hundreds of x-ray doses that you'd get today at a hospital, hundreds in one x-ray. So Marie Curie probably OD'd on x-rays, and her daughter was probably afflicted with that as well. But that's the capsule uh, history of Marie Curie. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating life. And there are a huge number of Valerie's popular books about her. There's a popular book. It's a, almost like a graphic novel that's done by an artist. And the book is called Radioactivity. And I'm trying to remember the name of the artist. It was a very popular book about eight or nine years ago. And if your listeners go off in pursuit of Marie Curie, that's a good one. Not only that, but leave it on your bookshelf at night next to bright light, turn it off, come in at midnight, get glows. <laughs> oh, that is pretty cool. Well, this has been spectacular. Thank you so much for being willing to meet with me. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much for sharing everything. Well, you're very, very welcome. I'm happy to talk to you about this. I appreciate your museum enthusiasm. I used to do some April Fool's videos. I may do some more. And uh, my object with April Fool's videos is to present something with fake science and try to convince a journalist somewhere to write about it. It's real and so far. Each time I've done this, some journalist has treated as the real thing, even when it's labeled an April Fool's joke. So I, mean, I think I'll send you your Star Trek fan by any chance. 
Yes, I am much more of a Trekkie than I am uh, Star Wars. Good. Then I'll send you the one that has the Star Trek reference. That's cool. That's a really cool idea. <laughs> I, if you wouldn't mind, I'll also share it in the episode notes. Oh, go ahead. That's what it's for. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you all so much for listening. I appreciate every single download. And I hope that you really enjoyed your time with us at the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia. Again, if you would like to hear more content, you can always go over to the Patreon page, Curator's Choice slash patreon.com slash curators choice and we have a couple different support tiers if you would like to support this podcast and you're enjoying what you do and also maybe just tell a friend it's always nice to have new listeners as well <laughs>